Okay, here we go. Bonus content. Um, if there's one thing I know, Miles, about the internet, content is not prince, not queen, not rook, but king. And this is bonus content that we are giving folks on this week five. Bye. How are you doing? Tristan, it's great to be with you. And it's I love content. I love making it. So it's great to be here. Um, I, uh, this time I'm, I'm on a business trip as you know, but this time I actually brought my mic with me so we can have just, you know, that, that high quality sound wherever we go, uh, across the States. So I come to you from the great state of New Jersey, as I look at the great city of New York. How is it over there? How are the Meadowlands? How are they wilted? Are um, they robust? Are they lush? It looks like someone um, trampled on the Meadowlands, and oh um, and there's a bunch of bird poop, which I can only imagine came from hawks. So yeah, yeah, the Meadowlands have looked better. I'm not gonna lie, but it is it is beautiful. It's um, I mean, I'm I'm literally looking at the Empire State Building right now. It is it is fall in New York. There is uh, the the my biggest takeaway, um, and we can just end the podcast right here after this one takeaway. Okay. Um. New Yorkers, I really love, I've been walking through some neighborhoods and they got a cool um, Halloween vibe, a lot of fun Halloween decorations all over the place. And it just, it looks perfect. Like you you see like, you know, the, um, the iconic New York type street, you know, with the brownstones and the, um, you know, the steps up to your, to your apartment and a lot of good Halloween decorations. So just want to shout out um, to all of our New York listeners, you guys are doing great with Halloween. And, um, I think it just is a little different. You know, there's palm trees in my front yard and I just, Halloween doesn't hit quite as hard when there's a palm tree. Um, but, uh, you know, it really, it looks like, uh, Halloween in the movies, I guess is actually what I'm trying to say. I, I feel like this is the vision of Halloween when you see trick or treaters and all that kind of stuff. I think we kind of grew up watching all those movies are kind of East Coast based, it seems like. So, um, yeah, it's looking good out here. Do people have anybody have a turkey in their front yard yet or we have inflatable, seen... you know, plate of stuffing in their front yard or people sticking to Halloween at this point? We're sticking to Halloween. Um, and I, I love that commitment and I love the methodical nature of it. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it is very nice out here. Um, but we have. Seahawks stuff to talk about, don't we, Miles? We have we have bonus content for the people. I do. We I miss the Seahawks this week, not having a game. It'll be good to have them back next Sunday. But in the meantime, they're just a bunch of rand of uh, documentaries out, and uh, the NFL's own bonus content outside of games that we've been taking in. That was good to talk about. Most importantly, the season of Boom, a YouTube series that the Seahawks themselves put out commemorating the 2013 Super Bowl winning season. Incredible. Yeah, I we were talking before the um we hit record that a lot of this for me personally is just and and I think for everyone watching it it's just so fun. It's such a walk down memory lane um of just seeing the guys in action, right? And and just seeing them um seeing what a magical team that was and also just what insane characters from you know from the from the offense to the defense everybody on that team it seems like had something to say and was a little off kilter 
um, which makes a documentary like this just really fun. I do think there has not been a more interesting team since the 2013 Seahawks. I'm still kind of waiting for it to happen. It's kind of a long time now, but it would be hard to say that there has been a team with more personality, with more of a of a signature. They, they're such a signature signature of what the 2013 Seahawks were. It's kind of bizarre that it just hasn't happened in any type of way since then. For any, yeah. It didn't have to be a like a defense-heavy team. There just hasn't been a team with this much of an established, they were the Legion of Boom. Like there hasn't been a team with a, just even a nickname, you know, as a little indicator of how much personality they had. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I distinctly remember just and watching this documentary documentary is bringing it back to me moments when I, I remember feeling bad for other offenses. And I mean, I remember g- genuinely as a fan being like, this is getting out of hand. Like this is like, I feel bad for these guys as they have to be hit by Cam Chancellor and be harassed by Richard Sherman and just be clotheslined by Brandon Browner. Um, it, it it was, and, and the word that came to my mind as I watched it and I always thought about those teams was it was predatory. Um, it, it was as if the opposing offense was at our mercy and, you know, th- you always had with that team, it was such a cool mix with Russell and the magic he brought um, along with just the ferocious defense that you, you obviously always felt like you were in every game, but you also just felt like it was never too late. Like there was always going to be another opportunity to somehow win or to, you know, get over the hump or whatever it was. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been fun. So should we start with that? Do you have any other stuff we want to talk about before season of boom? What what do you think? Because I know you've been, you've been on a tear of documentaries. I have been on a tear, a season long tear quietly. Uh, Yeah, I want to talk. So there was one thing I wanted to mention before we get into it. So the Seahawks create this season of boom documentary and it feels pretty normal. You know, that this, this is a thing that NFL teams do. They're putting stuff out on YouTube. Not that many people are watching it, you know, but uh, watching this kind of got me going back to a few links away to uh, Steve and Ed Sable and the creation of NFL Films. Do you know about these guys? It was a father-son duo, and they basically started NFL Films by themselves with a few cameras. They got the rights to film a game in like the 60s, and they just never stopped, and they created... They've both passed away recently, unfortunately, but for like 50 years, they were creating NFL films. And just the idea of, it feels pretty normal to us now, but just like seeing a guy in a, like an old NFL game running in slow motion with this like, <laughs> this really inspiring like symphonic music behind it. It's a really crazy idea. Like when you, when you actually watch the raw footage of like an old game, you're kind of like, oh. These guys look kind of small. The game's kind of slow. They're not really. But then you go to NFL Films, and it's this very like inspiring thing. And I do think that's most of the reason the NFL. I think I, I do think it's actually most of the reason the NFL captures our hearts and minds. It's a completely insane idea. the The intensity of that music and the, the trombones and the trumpets behind it. It's a completely insane idea to do. But I, I do love that the NFL does it. And watching other sports, there's a lot of leagues that don't 
come in and create this stuff with the level of creativity or or just intention that the NFL does. And I, I think it's a big reason it's such a big sport. What do you think? Yeah, it's um so I distinctly remember I'm gonna guess here on the um on the year. I think it was like two thousand and seven or something like that. Um they had one that was titled it was for the Seahawks and it was titled how the West was won. Um, and it was, in fact, it was probably early. It was probably 2004. Cause it was Matt Hasselbeck was the, was the, um, was the, the quarterback. And it, it was such a cool recap of the season. And I like, even though I knew how it ended, I knew we didn't go to the Super Bowl and all of that. It was still so fun to relive certain moments and, and unbelievable catches and, um, and, you know, funny things that the players are saying on the sidelines. And to your point, you have this big music playing in the background. Um, I'll probably watch that one like five or six times, maybe more, maybe 10 times. I mean, I, I love it. Um, I, in fact, I still have it, I think, on some Apple thing that I bought, you know, years and years and years ago. One of those old videos. Um, no, I and I mean, clearly it helped to tell the story of the league. Right. And it helped to bring the story of the league to other um, uh, other audiences, I'm sure. But I think more than anything, it helped NFL audiences understand the storylines instead of it just being a bunch of random games on a Sunday that you're watching while you're maybe drinking too much beer and, you know, kind of the, the stereotypical Sunday for a lot of guys to kind of take a step back and say, here's the, here's the story arcs and here's, um, here's what these games mean and here's what it means to the players and to give you a little different perspective um, is, is very unique. And yeah, you know, I haven't thought about the fact that other sports really don't have that, which, I mean, you would think baseball, you would think it'd be perfect for a baseball season, um, to recap, you know, 162. Yeah. 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 It, it, and it, I'm so glad they did it because it really keeps the deep history of the NFL alive more than it does for other sports. Like you can, you can picture older NFL stuff happening just so much better because, they did record it, and it has been kept alive. So one of the uh, – there was a documentary released on Roku. I don't think anybody's watched it except for me. I don't know exactly what Roku is, but it was called NFL Draft. The pick is in. And this documentary got com- complete access in the 2023 NFL Draft to four different teams in their draft room. We're, we're in with the Jaguars, the Colts the Cowboys, and the Panthers. And I would say what was interesting is the Colts and the Panthers, it felt like their draft rooms were pretty normal. We got the rows and rows of people at computers. I don't know what everybody's doing, but we, we're kind of used to seeing that now, a draft room with like dozens of people in it and computers and the big board. And it, it looked like business as normal was happening in there. And there was a really funny moment. The Right when the Panthers get on the clock, they had traded up to the number one pick a few weeks before. The moment they get on the clock, John Schneider calls Scott Fitterer and he says, he says, do you want to make a trade right now? Just there's there's having fun out there. There's having fun out there. Just a little G, a joke amongst GMs to wait till he gets to number one on the clock and say, uh, <laughs> would you like to make this pick? Um, now, the Jaguars, they're owned by Shad Khan. And his son is named Tony Khan. Have you heard of Tony Khan before? I have not, no. So I could not believe that they this documentary kind of showed Tony Khan because Tony Khan is most famous 
right now in the world of professional wrestling. He owns oh, really? this. He owns this company called All Elite Wrestling, which is like one of the first legit challengers to Vince McMahon and WWE. It's like its own. Co- so, so Tony Khan is kind of like this alternate Vince McMahon. He's owning this company. He's like, he's just in the wrestling world. He also has the title of like Jaguars Director of Analytics, but it's like, dude, that's a one hundred hour a week job. All Elite Wrestling, like to run this, the, you know, this it's one of these companies that's like constantly touring around America. They're on a deep cable like twice a week. We know you can't do both of these. We know your schedule. But so he's kind of like as the son of the owner, kind of like playing as the director of analytics. And you get the feeling that he was kind of like he had this office in the Jaguars facility. You had the feeling that he was kind of like walking in, like for the first time. And it was really Trent Balky, like running the show in the draft room. But I, I just couldn't believe that they were willing to show Tony Khan as like, like we, we already know your job. You're on TV on this other thing all the time. This can't be your full-time focus. And we know this is a job that has to be your full-time focus. So it, it was very surprising to me that um, they kind of showcased Tony Khan. And he, I just felt, you know, man, what if you're a Jaguar scout and you're pounding the pavement around the nation, you know, all fall, you know, and then suddenly Tony Khan swoops in. And it was a little hard to figure out how he contributed to the the draft room. But what I really wanted to talk about with this this documentary was how Jerry Jones runs the draft room in Dallas. It was there I there was it was it is not how I would do it is what I'd say. And I'd be very surprised if it if if it's how other teams did it. So there were three picks in particular that they really showed the Cowboys making that I was astonished at how it went. So they're sitting in the first round I had a great year last year. They're sitting at 26. And it felt like... So So they're also kind of in this U-shaped conference room. Like it's a U and Jerry Jones is in like the middle of the U. And they're all kind of like facing this big screen and the camera's looking back at them. So Jerry Jones is kind of in the middle of this U. Everybody's kind of pointed towards him. There's like a dozen guys around. They're all pointed towards him. They're sitting at 26. And it felt like, so the clock comes on the Cowboys, and it felt like that was when the conversation started. It's, he's kind of like, oh, we got 10 minutes here. And it was this really interesting thing if he's kind of going, they're picking between two guys. And he was kind of like, oh, which guy should we go with here? And it's, it, of course, it's not a decision between two guys. There's a million guys you're, you're picking with. But in, in the way he perceived it, it was like, we got two guys to pick between. Who do we go with? And the conversation, they're still going when there's a minute left on the clock, kind of talking this thing through. I would have thought you'd go a little earlier than that. They end up taking defensive lineman Mozzie Smith. It seems like a good pick. We're just getting started, though. Round three. They're, again, they're kind of waiting. They're the 90th pick. They're kind of waiting to get on the clock to start their discussion. And they're really thinking about a linebacker from Texas named DeMarvion Overshone. And that's who they end up picking. That's okay. Unfortunately, he tore his ACL in the preseason. Or he had a season-ending injury in the preseason. Feel bad for Overshone. But here's what happens. Jerry Jones' grandson, Paxton Jones, was his teammate on the University of Texas. They are on the clock. Jerry Jones calls Paxton, his grandson. 
hey, what do you think about DeMarvion? You know, what, what, kind of, what kind of guy is this? Oh, he, he practices hard every day? You talk to him every day? Okay, good. Hangs up the phone. Talks to the room of scouts like Paxson says he's a good guy. You know, it's like, wow, we're really kind of, we're kind of really going down to the wire there. I, you know, I think they, they all kind of knew about, about this guy already. Third round pick, you know, and waiting to call the grandson. It gets even it, it gets even crazier in the sixth round. So I saw during when the Seahawks played the Giants on Monday Night Football, they're using clips of this moment on one of those like uplifting ESPN commercials, like this is sports. So they've got the Cowboys, one of the guys in this draft room is Chris Vaughn, and he's their assistant director of college scouting. And Chris Vaughn seems like the best dude of all time. He's got his son, Deuce Vaughn, who is a running back at Kansas State. And he, Deuce Vaughn, his son, is draft eligible. And the days are going on. The picks are going on. We're into the sixth round. And Chris has to step out of the draft room a little bit because Deuce is calling him, like, in tears. You know, nobody envisions getting picked in the sixth round, you know. And the sixth round is going on. He's still not getting picked. And it looks like the dream is kind of dead. And while Chris Vaughn is outside the draft room, they all kind of decide they're going to take Deuce with their six-round pick, which is, what, which is what eventually happens. Deuce Vaughn is on the Cowboys right now. And there's a very emotional moment. It's so awesome. This is what's in the commercial where they let Chris call him and say, hey, you want to come to work with me on Monday? And he's in tears and it's this great moment. But the way we get there is so insane because Chris comes back from the, the first call where he's consoling Deuce Vaughn, he comes back into the draft room and they make him evaluate. They're kind of going like, oh, we're, we're deciding. Be- I forget the positions, but he's like, oh, we're deciding between this offensive lineman and this wide receiver. What do you think? And they make Chris kind of like <laughs> take a big breath. And you can see he's a real pro. He really kind of, he and he gives his opinion about between these two players. And then eventually they're like, Oh, we're going to draft Deuce. I thought it was a crazy mind game to run in the draft room. And anyway, so Jerry Jones has been the owner of this team since 1989. So he's had full access to NFL general managers and coaches and everything. You know, as the owner, he's had complete access since 1989. And I really think if there was some sort of program where you were, you know, let's say there's a program where we get full access. We get to sit on everything for 10 years. I think if you or I got complete access to sit in on everything for 10 years, it's funded somehow. I do think either of us could be the general manager of an NFL team and do an okay job after 10 to 15 years of sitting and waiting and kind of looking at how things are done, you know, observing and Jerry Jones had this opportunity for like 30 years now, you know, to look at this. And I just thought it was so, there's so many positives with Jerry Jones. He's going to give your team the best practice facility, the best stadium. He's going to make rooting for the team kind of a cultural phenomenon. But then there were these significant drawbacks of like, it just felt a really crazy way to run things when He's done this every year for for over for 35 years, you know. How are we waiting till till things get on the clock? It's um it's funny to think about like I don't know if he's playing to the cameras like just kind of the cowboy mentality, you know. It's like, "All right, what's your gut tell you? All right, we're we're going to pick this guy cuz, you know, Paxson says he's a good guy 
or whatever it is. Like they're they're it definitely feels in character with like, oh yeah, like we're cowboys where we you know, we we live our life with our guts and you know, with our our uh you know, what we feel in the moment and all of that kind of stuff. But I mean, it, you know, it does speak to it. I mean, obviously, you know, Dallas has been a good team. So you certainly can't say that he's mismanaged Dallas in any way. Um, but yeah, you would think like 35 years in, maybe it'd be a little bit more of a buttoned up, you know, buttoned up process. Let, let the analytics maybe get Tony in there, you know, maybe um, hire Tony away from uh, the Jaguars. And and now you can have really a, a top notch analytics department. Um, what a cool insight though. And I mean, I was looking at your notes and I'm just going to skip to the last thing on this because it's my favorite, which is I'm a massive Rich Eisen fan. And from a, from a broadcasting perspective, he's such a pro and his voice, his voice is so good. He's so good at asking questions, good at kind of wrangling everyone that he's with and making sure that everyone stays on the same page. Um, I, I just love that you put that on the notes that, you know, just kind of, you know, Rich Eisen is great because he really is. He 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 is so talented and he's put in so much work to get where he's at. I mean, I'm sure the prep he does for all this stuff is crazy, um, but it's I he's one of those guys. I, I enjoy seeing his success because he just he seems like a pro's pro. Absolutely. There was a lot of footage of of him and because uh yeah, I heard him talk about because he started at NFL Network when it started in like 2003. And it's hard to imagine NFL Network being like a ragtag group. But I heard him mention at one point that it was like a, it was like 20 people who worked for NFL Network when it started, which, which, which is actually you're kind of like, oh, maybe it was a ragtag group, actually. And, he, and he's been there since the start of that. I can't believe that means it's been 20 years since he's been at ESPN. But there's a lot of great footage of him and, and the, the team just having a fun time doing the draft broadcast and he makes it fun and that's that's not what everybody does in sports media these days is, is make it fun but he has a great awareness that what he's doing is fun and yeah you get to see a lot of good rich eisen in this documentary too yeah and i think didn't we talk about it last week or something like that or maybe it was just on a phone call like just the idea of he's a guy that doesn't take himself too seriously you know he he's super smart he's really successful yet um the way he manages himself is is very, um, you know, self-deprecating and he, he's having clearly having fun. He clearly knows, like, I'm lucky that I have this really weird, fun job where I get to talk about football all the time. Like, what a what a cool career to have. Um, and I mean, you know, he, he definitely has that hang factor. You know, he seems like the sort of guy who would be fun to to have a beer with and just kind of talk to and good conversationalist and well-rounded and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a moment because there's multiple broadcasts at the draft. There's a moment his side is on a commercial break and he sends a group text to everybody at the other broadcast just to see who's going to be the first person to like look over to their desk while they're on air. Just like John Schneider calling Scott Fitterer. They're having fun out there. Just just goofing off. My favorite Rich Eisen ism is when he's interviewing someone. He'll be like, uh, 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 let's see, I'm trying to think of what he'll call out something funny, but then he'll repeat the person's name. He'll be like, and miles, was that a, was that a good Sunday you had last night, miles? And then he'll, you'll just pause. Like, was that good miles? And it's one of, I don't know why, but it's every time he does it, I laugh so hard. I absolutely love it. I don't know if I'm doing it justice, but he'll, he'll use the person's name. 
And Miles, um, when you were uh, uh, at dinner last night, did you uh, you really enjoy that filet mignon? Didn't you, Miles? So, I'm, I'm, I haven't picked up on him doing that, but I'm, so, I'm sure I'm so sure weird. I will now. Yeah. That's it's so very good. weird. Anyway, that's that's a really weird Rich Eisen thing for me to bring up, but I, I absolutely love him. He's he's a pros pro. Um, I heard that Marshawn uh, was was chatting with our friend Shannon Sharp, another uh, member of the media, um, as we are. Um, our our credentials haven't come in the mail yet, and I'm not entirely sure where one gets the credentials from. Nobody told you. You, you got to make your own. So I've got some crayons and colored pencils over here. Oh. Um, I'm going to be, you know, using a laminating machine. So as far as I know, that's how it's done. Is um, that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, no, that's, well, that's excellent. And I can, I can get the girls on that ASAP. Um, uh, really fun conversation, obviously with Marshawn. Um, so interesting. He, is Marshawn Lynch the coolest guy in the world? I mean, he's yeah. on the list, I think. He is, he's my favorite football player of all time and, and probably my favorite athlete of all time. Uh, yeah. Um, the the way that he – I'm not a big celebrity guy. You know, I, I if I see a celebrity, um, I usually I, – I don't – my first thought is and I want – I don't want to – or I'm sorry. My first thought is not – I should approach those, you know, this person, this celebrity. I, I, like, I'm kind of more of a, you know, hey, you live your life, I'll live my life. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a big celebrity guy. I mean, and obviously now that I'm becoming a celebrity due to this podcast, you know, I, I'm going to have to work through that a little bit. And, and now really I'm talking about my peers when I'm talking about the Tom Cruises of the world and the Beyonce's and, and Jay-Z's. Anyway, all that to say, though, um, it, Marshawn Lynch, I think, is one of the few humans on the planet that, like, if I saw him in person, I would get some butterflies in my stomach, and I wouldn't know quite, quite what to do. I think I'd be like, "Like, do, do I approach you? Do like, do I shake your hand?" I would love to thank him. Like, that's kind of my my first thought with Marshawn. He's given me such great um, sports memories and, and really core, wonderful sports memories. I just, I would love to shake his hand and say thank you. You know, thanks for. You know, thanks for being you and and for doing your thing out there. I think I get butterflies too. I've had the fortune of being in the same record store as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and earlier this summer I was in the same Panera Bread as Shaden Sharp of the Portland Trailblazers. But uh, I still think I'd get yeah, I wouldn't it, yeah, I'd get some major butterflies if I saw Lynch out in the wild. Um, really, really interesting interview. Um. You know, I I think it's interesting hearing him talk about Russell's unique skill set. You know, he he talked about, hey, I you know I would I would pick Russ if if I needed a quarterback anytime. Um, and also, I think interesting because he he talks about him and Russell not really being friends and not really having a, a you know a super tight personal relationship, and yet from his perspective, from his perspective. Hey, he's a great quarterback. I, you know, like he messes with off or with defenses. I, I would love to play with him. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I think my personality, I really kind of have to like the people I work with. Um, and I, I have a hard time, I think, separating those two things out, the personal from the professional. Kind of interesting that, you know, from his perspective, it's like, no, yeah, great quarterback. Like, don't, you know, we're not super good friends. Like, we don't hang out. But yeah, cool guy. You know, it's an interesting dichotomy. 
Yeah, what I picked up on was um, I feel like Marshawn has a very a very sensitive radar for authenticity. And if he senses you're authentic, he loves you. And I think he's very open-minded. Uh, I don't know if you saw, there's a clip of him recently. <laughs> for some reason, he this year he was going around an Amish community in Pennsylvania. Did you see this at all? No, I didn't. I don't know why. It was on like the Thursday Amazon Prime YouTube channel. This It's like a three-minute segment. No idea why they did it. There's there's no connection back to football. You know, it, it's it's real. He's really out there. And it seemed like he was really enjoying his time with these people, I think because he sensed they were authentic, you know. And uh, I wonder if he had a, some misgivings about that with Russ. Another, uh, there was a moment that he mentions because Shannon asked him about his 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 financial responsibility and how he's gotten this reputation as a guy who really helps you keep your finances straight as an NFL player. And Marshawn mentions a player named Brad Butler, who he played with on the Bills. And I thought Shannon, I was like, I don't think Shannon Sharp knows who Brad Butler is. He kind of like went past it a little bit. I didn't know either. There's a good reason. Brad Butler had about 30 career games played as an offensive lineman. So this is really a guy at the, but Marshawn describes how Brad Butler helped him kind of realize that you needed financial advisors. And also the, there was a moment where Brad Butler was saying, so Marshawn Lynch's rookie deal was six years, 19 million. I guess Brad Butler came from a very rich family because Brad Butler, I don't know if he was messing with him or, or if it was, or if he was being real, but he said, you don't have enough money to talk to my family's financial advisors, by the way, six year, $19 million deal. You don't have enough money to talk to my family's financial advisors. And I think, in a way, Marshawn respected that too, just as he did the the Amish in Pennsylvania. Like, oh, this guy's for real. You know, he's not. Uh, he's giving me a real answer here. Um, anyway, yeah, I thought that was a great nugget that he still remembered this guy from like 15 years ago. Barely made a dent in the NFL and and gave him this shout out. That's awesome. Yeah, that that seems like very much like a Marshawn Lynch thing to do to like shout out and and talk about. Um, yeah, someone who's, who's kind of unknown that, that made an impact for him, um, was watching, was reminded as we were watching the, uh, the season of boom, um, the real Rob report, which I think you and I spoke about years and years ago, enjoying it at the time. And as I was watching a little bit of it today, there was a moment where Michael Robinson starts like following Marshawn like in the locker room and then into the bathroom and then like puts the the camera like over the bathroom stall. And I just, I put myself in Michael Robinson's shoes and I was like, that is so crazy that like you would have a relationship with Marshawn where you could like push him that far and like he just laps it off, you know, like Marshawn's just like, oh, you got me, man. Um, you're like, just like what a weird, um, cool dichotomy between those two guys and, and relationship, very different dudes, but obviously, you know, love and respect each other. I think, you know, you're fullback and you're, you're running back. And, and frankly, the last, with all due respect, I mean, kind of the last legit fullback that we've had is, is Michael Robinson. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other big thing I got from the podcast with, with Shannon was so, being in Seattle when this when the Seahawks went on that run in, in 13 and 14, there was a nobody everybody in Seattle was on Marshawn Lynch's side when he kind of became nationally famous for not talking to the media. And I thought there was a sense that you kind of knew 
he just felt uncomfortable with that type of moment because you knew how much personality he had following the Seahawks closely. So I think when it got to the national stage and he's at Super Bowl media day, just saying, I'm, I'm here so I don't get fined. You know, that became a maybe a bigger joke nationally, whereas we really felt protective of him closer t- to the scene. And I thought this podcast really showed that he had very real reasons to feel distrustful of that media coming from his time in Buffalo. Buffalo mm-hmm. sounded tough uh, just in terms of not in, in you know, 2007, 2008. And hopefully it's not the case today. I don't know. But back then, at least. It was very tough with a guy. Just He just even mentioned having dreadlocks and tattoos, which just feels like normal business, you know, but I, I think it made a pretty big impact just on the the community in Buffalo back then. He talked about getting pulled over constantly, even like within the stadium or practice facility, like just leaving, you know, team events, getting pulled over and stuff, which is, um, he was able to joke about it, but, you know, that'd be tough. That, that'd be traumatic. And, uh, I think he saw that the Buffalo media kind of piled on him in a personal way when the production wasn't quite there his first few years. And I think that really started. Um, I think that's why he had this tough, that, that's the whole reason why he had this tough relationship with the media. It wasn't that long between those days of getting pulled over, you know, leaving a game in Buffalo to being at Super Bowl media day. And I am glad that as he's retired and, that he's that he is treated with love and respect kind of by everybody. You know, it's hard to have a, a more universally loved NFL figure, but um yeah, I think I think we don't really think about it, but yeah, those that those would be tough times in Buffalo for for sure. Yeah. No, I mean very obviously different culture than than he's used to being a West Coast guy even. I think probably plays into that a little bit too and um being an Oakland guy uh, it's funny you mentioned, you know, most everyone respected him, not wanting to talk. I do remember distinctly there was one media member um, who I respect a great, a great deal, the late, great um, John Clayton. And John Clayton, the professor, had zero tolerance for the idea that Marshawn would not speak to the media. Like in his mind, it's like, nope, like we have an agreement. You have to do this. Like this is part of your job you do not have the right to say, I'm, you know, I'm just not going to talk. And I remember, I just distinctly remember on the radio way, on the airwaves, listening to, to John Clayton, you know, year, for years and years, like that was always kind of like up his craw, like just this, like, no, you have to talk. Like, this is not an option. And as like, um, even keel and chill of a guy as John Clayton was, um, he, you know, it cl- clearly was something that really bothered him. The idea that Marshawn, you know, just wouldn't, would not play the game. Man, that's tough. Cause I, I love and respect John Clayton too, but I, I bet Clayton was just so focused in on his job and, and what he did. And, and, you know, he worked so hard at it that it could be hard to see, you know, Hey, this is a person. And he had these really tough experiences in Buffalo as a 22, 23 year old. You know, that's that's really young and uh yeah, it's it's really great that that uh yeah, because Marshawn has so much it, it it shows how tough the NFL media can be that this guy with the most personality in the world, you know, felt a lot of kind of social anxiety sitting there uh in front of the microphones just in those specific moments, you know. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, total character. And one of those guys, I'm, I am grateful that he's on the Seattle. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of like the Seattle sports Mount Rushmore and, you know, kind of that terminology. So I, I don't know how I want to say it, but that he's one of the he feels like one of ours, like one of our legends and, you know, uh, in the Seattle sports scene. And, um, you know, in some ways, I kind of feel bad for Buffalo that, you know, he's he's not one of theirs. I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, they they think of him fondly, but um, his greatest moments obviously came as a Seahawk, although he did have some unbelievable moments. I mean, you see some of his highlights from his Bills days and he was juking and destroying dudes, you know, obviously those first few years. But um, yeah, grateful that we uh, that we had Marshawn would love now that we're kind of talking about Marshawn's personality. It's occurring to me. I would love to talk to Matt Hasselbeck about Marshawn Lynch. I would love to hear Matt Hasselbeck's experience because they were teammates for one year. Um, obviously, maybe maybe not even debatable. The most famous Marshawn Lynch run of all time, the Beast Quake, happened with um, against the Saints with with Matthew um, at QB. I would love to get someone like his perspective, like you know, how. How was Matt's relationship? How was Matthew's relationship with Marshawn? What was the dynamic of that relationship? That'd be kind of a fun, that'd be a fun behind the scenes. That's a great point. You don't even think about them crossing over much anymore, but yeah, that was where it, yeah, it all started with Hasselbeck still under center. Yeah. Um, what'd you think of the season of boom? The season of boom. Um, I was really struck in the first few episodes by how often and it seemed like it was an offensive group and a defensive group, but these guys really saw each other quite a bit in the spring of 2013. There was a big offensive group, uh, Russell and, and the pass catchers that went down to Southern California and got a lot of work in, in, in March or April. And then there was a, it seemed like a, a big moment for the Legion of Boom, like where they kind of, where that secondary really came together as a group came during an off-season. It was either a pickup or charity basketball game, so something completely off the football field. Hey, these guys see each other a lot during the season. So for any type of like off-season gathering, that's that's really impressive to me. For some reason, there's maybe it's cuz Pete gave these guys so much freedom. It seems like there's a little bit of poking holes in the like legacy of the team. There's like there's so much the guys talk so much about how they respect one another, but you know, the big, like the big takeaways, broadly speaking from even like the Marshawn Lynch podcast are kind of like, Oh, there's this tension between him and Russell between him and Pete. But it's like, th these guys still saw so much of each other, even in the off season, it really struck me as something unique as something you couldn't plan or manufacture as something that's not even necessary for every Super Bowl winner. But these guys really saw each other a lot. I remember um, back in the day listening to them talk about that, like how much the secondary specifically would just hang out together. I mean, we just, you know, whether that's playing pickup basketball, whether that's dinner, whether that's, hey, we're going to play a video game that are at Earl's house, you know, whatever it happens to be that we're just we're spending time together. And and they directly correlated that time spent together off the field with how good they were together on the field. Um, you know, which is so hard to understand. I mean, there it's so interesting the idea of of understanding somebody well enough 
just in social settings and and just in life in general. And maybe a lot of it is random moments when you're having dinner where you talk about the game for five minutes and then, you you know, the, the subject changes or, you know, so maybe there's moments where you're talking about the game. But just from a, a psychology perspective and from almost a physiology perspective, like the um, the intelligence, I guess, is what I'm getting at of of getting to know how somebody else moves and getting to know how someone else's body works and getting to know where someone's going to be on a football field spatially, you know, and how that's going to correlate with your game. And, and maybe I get to know that I trust you in this kind of a situation because we're playing call of duty. You know, I don't even know. Maybe I'm taking this too far, but you get to know someone's personality on like different levels um, it, when you spend different amounts of time with them. And it's crazy to think that that could be a benefit, but it, it totally makes sense because if you and I have never played together and now someone says, Hey, you guys get on the field together and, you know, communicate and be good teammates. Obviously our background together is going to be helpful, right? I mean, it'll be better that we know each other for years and years than if we were strangers, you know, and, and trying to figure out how to play together. Um, but yeah, it was it was very clear um, that that communication and that dynamic was was really important to them. Um, the, you know, the other thing that comes to mind as as I watched it and you talk about like, you know, the undertone with Russell, I was really I, I got to say impressed and I don't I feel weird using the word proud, but I'll I'll just say it like proud of the guys for how much respect they were putting on Russell's name throughout the documentary and, and especially the first, you know, five, six episodes where they just talk about the magic that he brought to the team and, and how important he was to the team. Um, I, I guess it kind of goes back to the Marshawn thing of being able to separate personal from professional and to be able to intellectually say like, yeah, like he was a very important part of our team and, you know, we, we really needed him and, and all of that. And obviously, you know, the, the relationships changed over the years, you know, it wasn't always, a rough, you know, kind of go of it. I, I distinctly remember after Russell's first big game, um, Richard Sherman on the airplane screaming in Russ, we trust, which I, you know, like I just in his excitement for Russell. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that relationships change and perceptions of each other change. Um, but the fact that they were able to sit down and have a conversation about, a great moment in their lives and say like, yeah, he was really good at that. Like, yeah, he, he was magical in this moment. I, I, I think it's something to be respected. There's a really small moment. There's these like this little vlog footage of, of the, of Russell and the wide and the pass catchers on their Southern California trip. And Russell had spilt uh, a cup of coffee in a hotel lobby. Yes. And he just kind of pops in. And he's like into front of the camera. He's like, just spilled some coffee it's a small moment. It's a little hard to imagine him doing that today. That's 10 years ago. There's been a lot more seriousness put on Russell Wilson's reputation since then. But I thought that was a really good sign. That was really important. I'm just like, yep, I'm the quarterback. I just spilled the coffee. Here we go. Like, yeah, it, it was, really, it was, the timing was even better. That it was, was really good. I'm not doing it justice right now. Uh, no, that stood out to me too. I thought it was really kind of, because it, it felt very unrustled, like it felt very real and very funny in the moment. And also kind of like, yeah, like I was clumsy, you know, and I spilled coffee and I'm the quarterback. Yeah. The other thing right alongside that a few minutes later, in that same um, episode, 
they're like making fun of him while he's driving. And like, you know, I, I forget even what they were saying, but um, they were kind of giving him a hard time as he was driving, you know, the the van, you know, so they can all get to the practice field. And you know, I don't know, maybe maybe that changes for most people when they get super rich. I, I don't know if that's what it is or not. But and, and maybe it's that he was the youngest guy, you know, or one of the younger guys. And, you know, a guy like Michael Robinson is just going to give him a hard time because it's like you're like my little brother. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a lesson to be learned in, in team development, that if you're going to have a young superstar, you should probably have a lot of, you know, older veterans that just, you know, are going to be able to be goofballs and, you know, kind of laugh at him and, and all that. But it I don't know it. it I thought it was interesting, even specifically the way Michael Robinson was talking to Russell in the van. Like there's just like there was a casualness and like, uh, come on, Rook, let's go. Like, what? let's get, you know, let's let's get to the field. And I don't know. There's just there was like a lightheartedness that seemed to have gone away at some point. Yeah. You know, nobody would ever be concerned about Russell Wilson having legal issues as players in NFL history have done. Nobody would be concerned about him lacking focus. You know, but like it, it, it focus at an extremely high level, but there there is kind of there has been there's been some sort of negative effect about the the fame and notoriety of it uh, with him over time, and it was it, it was really good to see to yeah to see how it all started. It it, it felt like a long time ago suddenly, uh, yeah. What do you remember about Red Bryant? Like, because I, I think we spoke about Red. We've spoken about Red over the years. You know, I love him. What, what do you like? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Red Bryant? Uh, are you being on him immediately? Because wasn't he like a fourth round pick? And you were like, he was like a third or fourth rounder, right? And you were Something. like, this guy, you know, you just immediately had an instinct for because that was the only place I had heard of him. But you were like, "This guy on the nose, it's unbelievable. This is an absolute mountain of a man, and he's causing problems inside. Look out for it." And you were totally right. Big red, and I mean, the weirdest part about his career is that he took off once they put him on the outside and made him—I don't know what they call that in the defense—but something more like you know the elephant or something like that. It's it's the huge, really big defensive line in that in that setup. And I remember distinctly the second they moved him to that spot. I mean, it was just magic. He was so good. Um, red was red is one of my favorites of all time. And I'll say it goes, it goes in every direction. I love the way he plays. Um, this documentary reminded me how much I love red Brian's voice. I love the way he talks. If, if I could have dinner with anyone, it might be Red Bryant, just so I could hear him like tell me stories. Cause he, he's got that beautiful Southern way of talking. And I, he, he actually did, I don't know if you saw this, uh, like a pump up thing for, um, before week one versus the Rams. And hearing him like just talk to the team and address the team was incredible. I mean, he's just, he has such a way about him and such a magic about him. And he seems like an insanely likable guy. That was that's what was so great about this was a true team because if you know he's probably the in, in fame or notoriety he would be somewhere around twentieth twenty first maybe on the Seahawks team but yeah he was a really really uh, valuable player. Um, yeah, he's he he's one of my my all time and you know again the, the leadership too right I mean. 
dude had a, a ton of leadership um, and was an important voice for that team and probably an important um, uh, uh, counterbalance to the Michael Bennett's of the world, right? So, um, yeah, one, one of my favorites. Hey, I got a trick, quick trivia question about this series. So Pete Carroll had a book on his desk as he was being interviewed at the Seahawks practice facility. What was the book? I have no idea. This, I had to. I just saw like a little bit of it, and then I had to Google it because I was like, "What is this thing?" Here's what the book was. It's called "The Unreasonable Virtue of Fly Fishing" by Mark Kurlansky. I don't know what Pete's doing in there, but he's reading this like it's like this like ode to the magic of fly fishing. That's like 300 pages. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know when Pete's ever had a chance to fly fish, but. What a guy. What, a, what I couldn't believe that. Just It's pretty prominently, it's kind of pushed forward on his desk. It's pretty close to the camera. And yeah, I don't know what that book was doing there, but there it was. Oh, that's funny. Um, so we don't have a ton of time left, but I'm, I'm looking at our notes. Do you want to give maybe a little description on what you're thinking about Sherman's description of the cornerbacks versus the wide receivers? Kind of talk through that really quick. I, I It looks like something we should talk about. Yeah. Uh, at the end of this series, Sherm has two minutes. It's the most revolutionary football advice or just discussion I'd ever heard where he talks about the cornerback wide receiver matchup as being intimate, as being seated at a small cafe table waiting for the food to come. And in that tip play, it was very obvious to him that the food was going to come. He had great situational awareness to know, hey, the food's coming right now. And just thinking about quarterback versus wide receiver as an intimate relationship out there in the huge stadium, I loved it. It was it was great to hear Sherm talk about that. You usually don't think of it like that, but yeah, there there must be kind of a ballet that they're doing out there together. I mean, you're running at full speed and you're trying to probably basically stay at like a cafe table distance away from the person at all times. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, you're you're face to face all day, so you really know how the other person's doing. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Um, well, I really enjoyed the documentary. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's cool. It's, it's again, just fun to walk down memory lane and to be reminded of how cool this team was. Absolutely. Tristan, we got a game next week. Fortunately, the Seahawks, Seahawks going up against the Bengals. I, it looked like this was going to be an easy game with the Bengals struggling the last few weeks. They were not struggling last week as they won against the Cardinals. This is going to be a really big challenge for the Seahawks. Yeah, Joe looks like he's uh, getting healed up, and obviously they have plenty of offensive weapons. Um, I'm hoping that our depth is what wins the day. I think we're a deeper team um, than the Bengals, but yeah, I mean, they definitely have some players we'd love to have, right? So um, it's going to be a challenge. Always compete. A championship opportunity every that's, Sunday. That's right. As As this podcast was, thank you, my friend. Until next time. Thank you.